Welcome to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, one world leader is assassinated and another resigns. The former Prime Minister of Japan, Shinzo Abe, has died, according to Japanese broadcaster NHK. That's after Abe was shot delivering a campaign speech. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson making it official outside 10 Downing Street, saying moments ago he would be resigning. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new prime minister. President Biden pushes back after the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. What we're witnessing wasn't a constitutional judgment. It was an exercise in raw political power. A local sports star is honored at the White House. Known for her creative play and leadership, she also leads with a fierce will off the field. A champion protecting the rights of fellow LGBTQI plus Americans. And political poo. A new state law dictates what you can flush. If that goes down the toilet, it's going to go into the sewer systems and it's going to wrap around the equipment. But we begin with the race for Senate here in Washington state. Democrat Patty Murray is seeking a sixth term in the United States Senate, and her likely opponent is Tiffany Smiley, a Republican out of the Tri-Cities. Now, no one seriously thinks Smiley can actually win. Nevertheless, Murray has already gone negative in her ads. Take a listen. What's at risk voting for Mitch McConnell's hand-picked candidate for Senate, Tiffany Smiley? Everything. I met with President Trump, and I was so impressed. Risking our democracy, since Tiffany Smiley still has serious questions about the 2020 elections. Risking women's reproductive health care. I am 100% pro-wife. Putting Social Security and Medicare at risk. And Mitch McConnell as majority leader. Tiffany Smiley, the wrong choice for Washington. I'm Patty Murray, and I approve this message. That ad and several others now playing in heavy rotation in Seattle media. Joining me now is political strategist Ron Dotsauer, and I guess the first question I would put to you is, why is Senator Murray going negative so early? Well, I think she made a very strategic decision to define her opponent right out of the box. And, you know, it's not a typical uh, play, uh, uh, but... Having said that, I think it may be a very smart play on her part, given that she wants to define her opponent before opponent defines herself, if that makes any sense, Jeff. So she wants to make sure that that the voters in Washington state early on understand who this candidate is. I think she wants to avoid her kind of running a a, a resume story and yet and have her or focused on policy issues. And the timing is is rather propitious, Jeff, in the sense that, you know, with the Roe v. Wade decision, right? Apparently, Tiffany is a, um, a pro-lifer. And as you well know, Jeff, that is, uh, um, that's not where Washington state voters are at. So I think given the timing of the Supreme Court decision, Tiffany's position on that issue, and also, she's really trying to tie her cans directly to uh, to Mr. Trump, who's seemingly on the run these days from the January 6th commission. And so those are two, I think, issues that she thinks can really distinguish who Tiffany Smiley is. And so she's going right at her. But I don't think it's a bad strategy. OK, Senator Murray has most research I've seen, independent research, not I have not seen any polling anybody's particular camp, but some of the independent stuff I've seen shows her with a a pretty solid double digit lead, you know, 10, 11, 12 points. So, again, it's as I said earlier, Jeff, it's not a, a typical move, but I think it's probably a smart strategic move. 
we may see more candidates throughout the country maybe doing some of that because we're you know people are are really working on defining their opponents very early on in campaigns these days, Jeff. Isn't one of the most dangerous times in a candidate's campaign when the voters really don't know who they are? Yeah, and then if you have the opportunity to early on define who they are, that puts your opposition on their heels throughout the course of the campaign. I, I suspect that, that that you know Tiffany Smiley is now going to be asked about her position on a regular basis with regards to her stand on pro-life which is, again, um, a it's a voting issue in Washington state. And Washington state is one of those extraordinarily supportive of a woman's right to choose. And Senator Murray's campaign has made sure that they're going to put an exclamation point on that with regard to Miss Smiley. So Miss Smiley is she comes from the Tri-Cities. I, I grew up there. You're also from eastern Washington. Yep. She's been involved in politics for a while. I, I wouldn't say she's necessarily been a perennial candidate. She's run for other things in the past, but she's kind of tied herself a little bit to this Clint Didier camp. That may work in Tri-Cities, but it's not gonna work really anywhere else in the state. <laughs> Jeff, you're absolutely one hundred percent spot on, okay? It plays well and, you know, with with um, some of the kindred spirits in, in the Tri-Cities, Eastern Washington. What's the last time Washington State ever elected a statewide candidate from Eastern Washington, Jeff? It's been a long and time. I, I've been around doing this for going on 50 years, and I'm 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 hard pressed to see if I can remember a new candidate coming into any statewide race and having success coming out of Eastern Washington for two reasons. One, obviously there's a geographic bias because they don't have, they don't have the population base, i.e. they don't have the voting base. Number one, number two, ideologically, they are not kindred spirits with 65, 68% of all the voters. Years and years ago, I used to tell people back when I, and I haven't, you know, I haven't touched a campaign in 22 years or more, Jeff. I don't, I just, that's not what I do anymore, but Mm -hmm. I remember an early candidate in the early 80s. They'd say, look, stand on the top of a space needle and do 360 degrees around the space needle. And you see all the votes you need to win in a statewide race. It was true 20, 30 years ago. It's still true today, Jeff. King, Pierce, Snohomish, Kitsap constitute in excess of 65 or 60. I haven't looked at the recent numbers, probably 67 or 68 percent of all the votes cast in the state of Washington. There's not the numbers that, that are on our side. Um, and then tying your tying your political fortunes to the Didier campaign, he's he has not succeeded very well, has he? Certainly not. For for those who don't know, Clint Didier is a, a county commissioner in Franklin County. He's he's tried to run for office statewide several times, even for Congress yeah. in Eastern Washington. Uh, lost every time until he got to the county commissioner's race. But kind of the best way to describe him, the best word I think would be angry. He's he's always mad at the establishment, whether it's Republicans or Democrats. And voters, even in eastern Washington, seem turned off by that. And it seems like an odd sort of tactic for Tiffany Smiley to align herself with him. Well, that's not where I would put my political capital, okay? Because it's just, you know, if you look at the, as you just articulated, Jeff, his political history is not is not very good. Republicans can win statewide in Washington state. They can win, Okay. But they have to be on the more moderate side of things. They cannot represent what I would call the mega win wing of the Republican Party and be electorally successful in Washington state. That is just a truism. 
And that's the, the challenge she's going to have. But she has aligned herself with the with what, what I would call the mega group. Right. Mm-hmm. And if she is part of the, the big lie, questioning the outcome of the elections and all the rest of the of the uh, Trump talking points, she's not going to get any traction. I'm just going to tell you that right now. And, and to that point, actually, uh, our friend Matt Markovich used to be with uh, Como News, now over at Q13, Fox in Seattle, had, had interviewed her. And I was talking with him the other day. And part of that interview was, do you believe that Joe Biden was elected president? Well, Tiffany Smiley kind of hemmed and hawed and didn't really uh, answer the question. And, and that will not play well in very blue Washington. It won't even play well in eastern Washington except for that very, that small group. And remember, the Secretary of State during that election was a Republican and did a hell of a job as Secretary of State. I applaud the job she did. Washington State has always had, as a, again, 100 years ago, I was a county auditor in the 70s down in Clark County. And my job was county ballots. That's one of the principal jobs for county auditors in all 39 counties in the state working closely with the Secretary of State's office. We have always had such integrity around our elections processes. We've always had vote by mail. We just just call it absentee voting, Jeff. And so there's no difference. And the process has been successful and, and, and the integrity process in place. For her to question the validity of the election, people will bring into question her judgment. And so she's not exercising good judgment and particularly here in Washington state. So, I mean, she has so many uh, challenges in front of her. She just, from what I can tell from what you said to date, and and again, I'm not tracking it every single day, um, but she just seems to be out of sync with Washington state. So how does a Republican win statewide election in this state? Well, Dan Evans was a a prototypical uh, Republican who could have success, uh, obviously Slade Gordon, who was attorney general and then U.S. senator. There was several members of Congress that were Republicans. A guy named Joel Pritchard, who later on became lieutenant governor, was, uh, was a Republican congressman representing North King and parts of Snohomish. And they all came from an ideology that was very pragmatic. You know, they were fiscally conservative which I think generally speaking, voters tend to be, but they were very modern on issues like education, healthcare, the environment. Uh, and even, um, I, I, I don't want to speak for Dan Evans, but I think Dan Evans was pro-choice. That's where you can go and you can win. The problem, the, the problem with the GOP in Washington state and why they've had no success electorally is they're nominating Republicans that are the right wing faction of the GOP that will not have and be acceptable, particularly, particularly to Puget Sound voters, the greater Puget Sound area. Okay. And I'm not not just, I'm not just talking about Seattle. I'm talking about the greater Puget Sound area. So they, they are not aligning themselves ideologically. Number one, if they did that, they'd have more success. Number two, I believe they need to have candidates coming out of the more geographic populist part of the state that have showed some moderate tendencies. And I also think the public is just, I think the the fatigue factor on what I call the partisan polemics that's going on uh, in this country today, and it scares me for the future of this country, Jeff. I have a a boat, Jeff, and the name of this boat is called Crossing the Isles, I-S-L-E-S, okay? (laughs) Love the pun. Yeah, and that's that's the point. Let's, Let's find ways 
to work together in the common good for the public. And that's just not what we have in the body politic today. And honestly, in my opinion, the Democrats can be just as guilty on the far left as the the mega far right folks. That's not where Washington State, Washington State, generally speaking, is center left, but not way left. It's it's more center or center left, but more centrist in you know, like in Snohomish and Pierce County and Kitsap County. And even King County is more center outside the city of Seattle. So that creates all kinds of political opportunities for Republicans okay, to be successful. But they can't get out of their own way in terms of the nominating process. They nominate people like Culp and Didier, and, and now they've now they've they've got a female version of Culp and Didier and, and Tiffany Smiley. It's what it looks like to me. Those are just not acceptable to voters, particularly in Western Washington. So who, who's at fault for that? I mean, is that the 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 party leadership in the state party committee? I mean, how, how who's recruiting these candidates? Yeah, how do you change that? Yeah, it's a combination of all those. Okay, it's 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 a lack of leadership amongst the political parties, and that they what they have done is they have succumbed, particularly the the GOP has succumbed to the the right wing zealots, the, the what I call the mega group, right? That is not electorally successful in the state. Somebody needs to step up and exercise some more leadership to say, listen, are you ready to do some winning? <laughs> okay. Are you ready to start winning some offices? How many how many losses does it take statewide to understand what we're what we're putting out to the voters just isn't working? And until they wake up to that, they're going to continue to be also rans when it comes to campaigns. Jeff, I am and have have always been a supportive of I love races to be competitive. I want voters to have a good choice with a very strong competitive race on the Republican and the Democratic side. The public wins if we have good candidates running for office. But if we have ideologues that do litmus test crap all the time and, and who represent a very narrow faction of the body politic, that's not going to happen because Patty's going right for the jugular on Smiley and defining who she is right out of the box, not messing around. So here they are, they're nominating a person who represents this profile, who is not, in, in my opinion, ultimately probably electable in Washington state. All right, Ron Dotsauer, founder of Strategies 360, political analyst. Thank you so much for joining us. Jeff, thank you. Good questions. I appreciate you. We have to take a quick break, but when we come back, Boris Johnson resigns and Shinzo Abe is assassinated. The latest on both with the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel over in England. Keep calm and carry on. Here's Elisa Jaffe. After three turbulent years in office and mounting pressure to resign, Britain's brash Prime Minister Boris Johnson conceded. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Tom Rivers, you're there in London. What's the reaction to Johnson saying he'll stay on as prime minister until the party picks his successor? The last leadership contest took a month and a half. Yeah, the jury's kind of out. Uh, he kind of nailed it on the head when he uh, came outside of 10 Downing Street and basically said, some of you are going to like my departure, some of you aren't. And that's kind of where the country is. I know that there will be many people who are relieved 
and uh, perhaps quite a few who will also be disappointed. And I want you to know how sad I am to be giving up the best job in the world. But them's the breaks. And, and we have a fork in the road. It's been done two different ways in the past. The ruling Conservative Party, they off times with an election around the corner. This one has to be within two years. If uh, the leader looks kind of shaky, they off times will have a, a snap internal election and get rid of that person, get somebody else in there. Now, what happens is, is sometimes the prime minister of the day, like Boris Johnson, will be a caretaker, as you say, for probably around six weeks. Other side of the coin is that, uh, no, you get somebody that uh, becomes an interim prime minister, like, in this case, Dominic Robb, the deputy prime minister. He could fulfill that role. So you got, you got members in uh, the Conservative Party kind of echoing both of those lines. We're none the wiser. There's going to be a committee meeting on Monday, I guess, to try to sort out which way, which, which road in the fork they're going to be taking, certainly going forward. My friends, in politics, no one is remotely indispensable. And our brilliant and Darwinian system will produce another leader equally committed to taking this country forward through tough times. There's been a wave of resignations, Tom, because of his questionable leadership and lack of integrity. And in the last few days, I've tried to persuade my colleagues that it would be eccentric to change governments. Very much so. Again, it was kind of a, the battle of attrition. Wave upon wave of scandals here. I guess first and foremost, the one you probably heard about the most is Partygate. Bad, bad optics. When uh, his scientific and medical uh, senior officers were saying, you know, you must stay at home over the past two years. Most everybody did comply, except they were holding uh, drinking parties uh, Friday nights down in the government offices. That does not look good. Also, allegations of corruption in the uh, government itself. Allegations of uh, money coming from, quote unquote, potentially dubious sources into the coffers of the of the party. And lastly, the thing that really broke the camel's back was uh, Boris Johnson appointing an individual to be chief whip, person who kind of marshals the uh, legislation and uh, gets people online to vote the government's way on legislation in, in parliament. Um, an individual that was uh, facing allegations of sexual misconduct. And when uh, word got out that uh, Boris was appointing this individual, um, Boris said, I, I, know, I know nothing. And he circled back and said, well, there was an investigation. They didn't find anything. And then he circled back a third time. And he said, basically, um, well, I shouldn't have appointed this guy. And I'm sorry. That was just a straw too many to break the back, and uh, there you are. And uh, although he's a colorful character, he ain't going to be around anymore. So, uh, yeah, we have to look for somebody that is more conventional, as they say, the men or women in gray suits going to be taken over in, in, his, uh, in his wake. Those are the scandals, Tom. What about achievements? Achievement, he's arguably, and you watch, if you go back, thumb through a history book 10 years from now, and you'll say who in Britain, after the referendum, was able to get across the line and get uh, the referendum deal struck with the European Union? And the answer is just about nobody other than Boris. So that is his major accomplishment. He did something that Theresa May tried and failed and tried and failed. And others in the Labour Party were, were, were tweaking at and they were falling on their own over their feet. But Boris got it done. In that regard, I think at least uh, over half the country is very, very pleased that he did that. 
but his actual running of the government was uh, was a little bit chaotic, to put it mildly. How does the government conduct business when more than 50 government officials quit in this mass exodus in protest of him? And, and do any of them get their jobs back even though they resigned? Uh, the latter, no. Uh, he's, he's kind of saying, no, if you, if you uh, put the knife in, you ain't coming back. So we got, we're going to have a real r- rookie squad in there for the next X number of weeks. How does life go on? Uh, pretty good. But I thought some of the committees couldn't go forward because they didn't have people in charge of them now. Well, as of right now, they're, they're, he's actually stacking up positions again as we speak, and there will be enough that will be willing to come back for just a few short weeks. But yeah, you're right. There are some empty chairs right now where uh, <laughs> people should be sitting at desks in the various government departments, and uh, it's not happening right now. Is the sky falling? You'd be surprised to know. No, it isn't. What's the international reaction like from Russia and the United States? You know, there hasn't, it's been, it's been so intense here. I think Putin is probably having a wry smile about this. Um, I would guess behind the scenes, the Biden administration did not like uh, Boris Johnson because he was so close to uh, President Trump. So they're probably quite happy. Again, you think back to uh, Brexit and there was talk going back a few years now that uh, the UK would be striking a, a trade deal with the U.S. Well, Biden has dragged his feet on that. It's not happened. So he's probably pleased that Boris is uh, being shunted out and uh, somebody else will be coming in to replace him. ABC's Tom Rivers joining us from London. Thank you, Tom. That's Elisa Jaffe. Meanwhile, Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe was assassinated this week. We get more on that from ABC's Andy Field. The shocking part of this is that it happened in Japan. This doesn't happen in Japan. Shootings are virtually non-existent. I think if they even get into the double digits in that country in a year, that's a really bad year. In the United States, we get into double digits by before midnight on Friday night any weekend. So it's, it's pretty extraordinary that this happened. And of course, this man did not have access to a gun. What he had was access to plans on how to build one. And he built one himself, which if you've seen the video of this, it looked like a cannon going off. Uh, and uh, Shinzo Abe uh, was probably dead immediately with all the blood loss and the way he was hit there. Uh, he was one of the longest serving prime ministers in Japan's history. I think it was eight years. So he took some time off in the middle of all that. And then he basically retired and resigned from the job uh, just in the middle of the pandemic around December of 2020 because he had had some medical issues some recurring uh, bowel in, uh, inflammation that he had that he, he needed to take care of. And he's been pretty much out of the picture since then. And it was interesting that he's back on the campaign tra- trail, uh, not for himself, but for other uh, folks who were running, uh, trying to continue his own vision in that country. Certainly, it is an aberration in Japanese life that anything like this happens, but certainly not to a political figure, a towering political figure like Shinzo Abe, who was a a big ally to the United States. He revitalized the Japanese economy. Uh, He led the nation to take a stronger role in Asian. And basically kind of a a rare point of political stability in that country because before him, uh, there had been a whole string of prime ministers that had kind of come and gone as Japan's power in the world had waned. Japan, of course, was our our enemy in World War II. They attacked us in Pearl Harbor, and it was a long road to come back to have some sort of uh, peaceful dialogue between the United States and Japan to becoming very good allies. But Shinzo Abe was not 
of the mind that many Japanese are that they had to keep apologizing for World War II. Uh, he wanted respect on the global stage. He wanted to have military might for Japan. And that was very different from some of the other leaders in that country that had been uh, uh, basically flailing themselves for uh, their role in in the World War and fighting the United States, which had become its allies. So uh, he's an interesting character. He had good relations with a number of U.S. presidents over the years. He'd been to the White House, and of course, U.S. leaders had been there. So this was a very big political figure in that country. And for him to be assassinated in what was basically a garden variety political speech is just shocking, not only in Japan, but around the world. ABC's Andy Field, thank you so much. We have to take another quick break, but coming up, the president responds to the fall of Roe v. Wade and issues an executive order to protect the rights of women when the Northwest Politicast returns in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Podula. At the White House, President Joe Biden signed an executive order on abortion access, stressing the only way for the government to re-secure Roe v. Wade protections is for Congress to pass a federal law. Consider the challenge accepted, court. But in the meantime, I'm signing this important executive order. Matt Viser is covering it for The Washington Post and tells Taylor Van Syce the order aims to protect access to reproductive health care services and contraceptives. The other aspect is around privacy protection, particularly around women who may be uh, looking on their phones, uh, searching up uh, potential access to an abortion. And, and uh, Biden is ordering Federal Trade Commission to look at that to make sure that uh, that data is protected. The president is um, l- limited, though, in, in what he can do, obviously. What cannot, what can't he do with uh, with an executive order? Yeah, I mean, that was a major focus, actually, of his remarks, uh, was trying to pressure Congress, trying to encourage encourage voters and representatives uh, who could codify, who could, could pass legislation uh, that would put this stuff into law and put these protections into law, which Biden is kind of conceding that he can only do so much through executive order. And, you know, he's trying to come up with different ways to do that. And there are limitations on what he can do here. Um, you know, in, in states where abortion is banned, there's not a whole lot that Biden can, can do in those circumstances. So they're trying to find ways for women who may live in those states that want access to an abortion to find other avenues through in, in other states. But but that's quite limiting, uh, particularly if you, if you have more states that do ban abortion. Does this ease the pressure now for members of his own party to act on abortion? Because there were quite a few Democratic lawmakers who were saying something needs to be done by the president in the days after the Roe uh, Ro overturning. It's interesting today, and in, in some of the initial reaction that we're hearing, is there's a lot of statements and, and commentary talking about how this is a good first step. Um, the emphasis probably being on first in that in that aspect. That people want to see more. They want to see more from Biden. Uh, they want to see him stretch his executive powers even further than he's doing today. Uh, some are calling on him to expand the Supreme Court or support expansion of the Supreme Court, uh, you know, acknowledging that this court is going to be here for a while and, and may have other rulings that he and Democrats disagree with. So I think people, uh, at least in his own party, are welcoming this step today 
but they're hoping it's, it's only the first of many. Matt Visor with us on Northwest News Radio, reporter for the Washington Post, and you can find more online at WashingtonPost.com. And that's Taylor Van Size. But as the president stated, there is only so much he can do. That's why Democrats in Congress are hoping to codify Roe into law. 8th District Congresswoman Kim Schreier. Ultimately, what we need is uh, for Congress to make Roe the law of the land. However, we already passed legislation to make Roe the law of the land. We did that in the House of Representatives. It is time for the Senate to take action. Now, we reached out to the three Republicans in Washington's congressional delegation for their thoughts, but none of them responded. Schreier's likely opponent this fall will be Republican Reagan Dunn. However, he is on record as being pro-choice, but voted against affirming support for abortion rights on the King County Council earlier this year. We have to take another break, but still to come for a little while this week, sports at the center of the political universe. Details on that when the Northwest Politicast continues after this. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, it's not often that sports become the center of international intrigue, but that's exactly what has happened with the WNBA. Basketball star Brittany Griner has been held in Russia on drug charges since February, and this week she pleaded guilty to those charges. But now she's pleading with President Biden to get her released. Joining me now is ABC's Faith Abube from Washington, D.C., and what's the latest here? Her uh, guilty plea sort of came as a surprise, at least to the people on the outside looking in. Um, because she's uh, now been in Russia detained there uh, for having, um, you know, hashish oil in her luggage uh, since February, four and a half months now. And then she goes to court and she said that, you know, she did not intend to break Russian law and that she accidentally packed those cartridges, the vape cartridges into her luggage and um, did not mean to. And so, of course, this is coming after her family here at home, loved ones, friends, people who've been, you know, watching her fans have been really stepping up the pressure on the Biden administration to do more, at least publicly, to try to get her back home. They just didn't feel like the president was taking this, uh, you know, as aggressively as he could possibly be. And so for this guilty plea to come, that was sort of a surprise. But to give you a little bit bit of background, you know, based on what we know, you know, in Russian criminal cases, when a case comes to court in Russia, 99% of the time you will be convicted. And so was this an attempt to try to reduce her sentence? Uh, It's unclear. But also, uh, once your criminal case is over in Russia, you have a chance to ask for a pardon. Uh, It's not automatically granted. Uh, However, you do have that opportunity to ask for that. So was that also part of the calculation? At this point, we just don't have a lot of information on that. As for the White House, you know, they are saying that they are continuing to work as aggressively as possible to bring her back home. Uh, They don't think this guilty plea has had any impact on the path that they've been taken. And, you know, they are continuing to negotiate and they refuse to, uh, you know, negotiate in the public sphere. What can the White House do here? Well, there have been a, a lot of things circulating in Russian media. Uh, they've b- basically been suggesting maybe there'll be a, you know, a prisoner swap, as we saw in the um, uh, Trevor Reed case uh, just a few months ago. Uh, so that that was one suggestion. But it's just unclear at this point, uh, you know, who the U.S. would be willing to swap for Brittany Griner or any other uh, wrongfully detained American there over. Uh, Overseas, You know, the U.S. at this point, even though Griner has pleaded guilty, they are still classifying her detention as, you know, something that's, you know, a wrongful detainment. 
And so um, they are saying that they're working behind the scenes. You know, they have the Secretary of State involved in this and, you know, other officials in the administration involved in this. Could there be a, a prisoner swap? That is on the table. Um, but it, it just we just have no idea what's happening behind closed doors because uh, in these situations, things were very sensitive and they try to keep these details as close to the vest as possible. So how much of this is a, a proxy battle over Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Because she was detained at roughly the same time that that invasion started. Right. And, and that's what her family has been saying over and over again, which has added to the frustration. You know, her family has been saying uh, because of the timing of this when she was arrested, that they believe that she's being used as political pawn. And perhaps, uh, you know, uh, uh, Vladimir Putin uh, has something to do with this and that they are holding her in order to get something out of the U.S. You know, it's just we just don't know the facts at this point, but just based on the circumstances surrounding her arrest and, you know, what's happening uh, with all of this, that is how the family feels uh, about what's going on. And they believe that, you know, the political games need to stop and that, you know, their loved ones need to be brought back home. And not just Brittany Griner, you have the family members of uh, Paul Whelan, who has been detained there in Russia since 2018 and has been sentenced to hard labor. They've been begging the Biden administration uh, to actually help bring him back home as well. So all these families just want something to be done. And as far as publicly, we're just hearing very little from the administration. All right, Faith Abube from ABC in Washington, D.C. Thank Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jeff. Now, a local star was honored at the White House this week, not for her play, but for her community leadership. We get more on that from Ryan Harris. At the East Room ceremony for this year's Presidential Medal of Freedom recipients, President Joe Biden talked about the time his granddaughter, a high school athlete, was with him when he got to meet Megan Rapino. She was so excited to be with you when you won the, the championship. And walking off the field, we said hi to you. She said, I was busy. So when she wins again, I hope I see her, she'll say, I think I know that guy. The president not only acknowledged Rapino as a social justice leader. Megan did something really consequential. She helped lead the change for perhaps the most important victory for anyone on her soccer team or any soccer team. Equal pay for women. The class of 17 recipients included a nun, a priest, a gold star father, two prominent civil rights leaders, and the nurse who got the first COVID vaccine shot outside a clinical trial. Ryan Harris, Northwest News Radio. Still to come, did you know that there is a lobbying group called the Responsible Flush Alliance? Who they are and how they plan to legislate your toilet when the Northwest Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Northwest Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogel. And now, even though the White House got a positive jobs report this week, Americans are still concerned about the economy. Senator Maria Cantwell is talking about inflation and ways to unlock its grip on the local economy. John Lobertini has that story. Unlocking the supply chain gridlock is critical to easing inflation's chokehold on the American economy. Senator Maria Cantwell is squarely focused on cars and semiconductors. It's hampering the cost of cars. Cars are up 40% for used cars just because people don't have enough chips to get new cars. Then the high cost of prescription drugs. If you ask consumers, this is the number one concern they have. During a recent roundtable in Seattle, Cantwell pointed the finger at the drug market. 
market for pocketing discounts intended for patients. We want to see a federal policeman on the beat in the Federal Trade Commission whose job it is to call out unfair and deceptive practices. And gas prices, much like the energy crisis 20 years ago, Cantwell blames unregulated traders. The gas prices right now are being set by as little as a few trades on these dark indexes that no one has any transparency and oversight of. Congress is considering it all, but as one Washington Republican put it, the Biden administration shut down American energy for its own agenda. John Lobertini, Northwest News Radio. Now we reached out to our state's Republican representatives on this and several other issues. None has responded. Finally this week, if you have purchased disposable wipes in the last few days, you may have noticed something new on the label. It comes with a new state law supported by the Responsible Flush Alliance. On July 1st, the Washington Association of Sewer and Water Districts recognized that effective date for a new law they hope will spare the sewer system some grief. Laura Weiss with the Responsible Flush Alliance. If that goes down the toilet and let's say it doesn't cause a clog at your house, it's going to go into the sewer systems and it's going to wrap around the equipment at the uh, sewage treatment facility. Do not flush symbol must now be on packaging of disposable wipes sold in our state, including baby wipes and cleaning wipes. This is not the wipes that say flushable. Those are still fine. Utilities across the nation spent an estimated $440 million last year removing clogs caused by improperly flushed single-use wipes. Carleen Johnson, Northwest News Radio. And that'll do it for this episode of the Northwest Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Northwest News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and Puget Sound Now with Bill Swartz. All are available at nwnewsradio.com or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.